I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading the book of 1 Thessalonians. This is the new King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. This letter from Paul was probably written around 50 to 52 AD, thus being one of the earliest of Paul's letters. He had founded that church back on his second missionary journey in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. That was his first venture into Europe. In chapter 1, verse 1, we see that Paul was accompanied at the time of this writing by Silvanus and Timothy. We know quite a bit about Timothy, and his identity is beyond dispute. Bible scholars disagree, however, regarding the identity of Silvanus here. Most are convinced that Silvanus is Silas' Latin name as a Roman citizen, while a few believe this refers to another individual altogether. Fact is, Silas did accompany Paul and Timothy on Paul's second missionary journey, which began in Acts chapter 15, verse 36. The mention of Timothy almost certainly identifies Silvanus and Silas to be the one and the same person. We begin chapter 1 with a commendation from Paul toward the people there, the believers in Thessalonica, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything." For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Well, Paul only has good things to say about these folks. After his initial standard greeting in verse 1, he expresses his prayer for them in verses 2 through 4. His commendation of them continues through the entire first chapter, commending them for being examples in Macedonia and Achaia, and really beyond in verse 8. They had embraced Paul's ministry and teaching wholeheartedly, we see in verses 5 through 7, which served to validate their election, verse 4. Notice particularly verse 10, it says, "...and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come." The Greek form of the phrase, who delivers, in that verse is a present active participle that indicates a continuous action. Jesus is the one delivering us. As we'll see in the latter portions of this epistle, 
chapter 5, verse 9 and following. The wrath to come is undoubtedly a reference to the tribulation from which we are to be delivered, means spared, by Jesus Christ. So when you're looking for verses that suggest a pre-tribulation rapture, well, count this one. Incidentally, a reference to their previous idol worship is made in verse 9. When Paul and Silas first show up there in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9, we see in verse 4 of that chapter that a great multitude of Greeks were saved. While he did experience some success on that visit among the Jews as well, it would appear that the predominant composition of believers there in that church in Thessalonica were of Gentile background. Then Paul discusses his ministry style in chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor cloak for covetousness, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil. For laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. When verses 1 and 2 here, Paul makes a reference again to events surrounding his second missionary journey, his visit to Philippi just prior to arriving in Thessalonica. There he'd served some jail time in Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 40. The local Jewish leaders gave Paul trouble in Thessalonica as well. Nevertheless, with steadiness and consistency, Paul preached the simple truth of the gospel to them without fanfare or ulterior motive. He says so in verses 3 through 7. Now, for those who think the ministry of the gospel is best presented in a big and loud fashion, we'll pay close attention to these verses, especially verse 7, when Paul says, But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Paul ministered to these believers in a low-key, deliberate fashion, and that was to help them build their faith. He lived a life of example before them and encouraged them to do the same thing when he ministered to them in person. He differentiates his ministry among them from others in verse 8, where he points out that he didn't stop with the gospel message, but he loved them dearly and shared with them, he says, our own lives. He indicates in verse 9 that he worked at a secular trade during his stay with them in order to earn his own keep. He did so that his motivation might not be misinterpreted, as we see in verse 10. He says his relationship with them was as a father to his children, as he mentored them to walk worthy of God in verses 11 and 12. 
We see in verses 13 through 18, though, that the Jews gave Paul fits. Verse 13, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of truth, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they do not please God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. So, as always, to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. Paul continues here to commend the faith of these Thessalonians in the church there by noting that the word of God is effectively working there among them. He then compares their stance for Jesus Christ to that of the churches in Judea, just as these Christians at Thessalonica suffer for their faith at the hand of their Gentile countrymen, so do the Judeans from the Jews. He says that in verses 13 and 14. Now, that leads Paul into a discussion in verses 15 through 18 concerning the ill treatment that he'd received at the hand of the Jews. As a matter of fact, Paul makes some very frank statements about these Jewish leaders here. Let's take a look at these um, Jewish statements, the resume from Paul's perspective in verses 15 and 16. He says the Jews had killed the Lord Jesus, true. The Jews had killed their own prophets, yep, true again. The Jews persecuted Paul, way true. And the Jews forbade Paul to evangelize Gentiles, all of it true. So does Paul have any justification to suggest that the Jewish leaders have persecuted him? Well, let's see. Paul had been run out of Damascus in Acts 9, and Jerusalem also in Acts 9, and that was by his own people shortly after his salvation experience. His message was rejected, and he had to make a hasty exit from Pisidia, Antioch, in Acts chapter 13. Then at Iconium, the Jews stirred up the people against Paul and Barnabas and ultimately forced him out there in Acts chapter 14. These angry Jews then went to Lystra to rile those folks up, which led to Paul's stoning being left for dead, recorded in Acts chapter 14, verse 19. And it didn't stop there. The Jews continued to plague the missionary band into the second journey, specifically at Thessalonica, again resulting in Paul's exit in Acts chapter 17. Even now, as Paul writes from Corinth, the united attack has been mounted against him by the city's Jewish residents, recorded in Acts chapter 18. All in all, I'd say Paul is expressing his difficulties with the Jews quite mildly, really. So when Paul explains why he hasn't been back to visit more often, he concludes in verse 18, Therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. Paul talks about a crown of rejoicing in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 2. Let's read those two verses. Verse 19, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Paul wants to go see these folks, 
In verses 19 and 20, he indicates that the very fact that they have salvation in Christ because of his ministry among them is the basis for a crown he expects to receive at the judgment seat of Christ. He calls it a crown of rejoicing for faithfulness in ministry. Now, if you'd like to know more about the judgment seat of Christ, then look at my notes on 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Then we come to chapter 3, where we talk more about those Thessalonians. Verse 1, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone, and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you, Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live, if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God? Night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. In this chapter, Paul expresses concern regarding their ability to withstand persecution. Paul stayed in Athens in Acts chapter 17 while sending Timothy to minister to these Thessalonians. In verses 1 and 2, we see that. He did so when he could no longer endure it. That phrase indicates that he simply could no longer endure it without knowledge of how the Thessalonians were holding up under persecution. And what about these persecutions? Well, in verses 3 and 4, Paul explains that these persecutions are just a part of contemporary life within the social system, the same persecution that he had warned them about when he ministered among them. Notice what it says in verse 5. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. After getting a positive report back from Timothy on the spiritual state of the people in that church there, in verse 6, Paul commends them on their faithfulness. That faithfulness has brought him comfort, he says in verse 7, to the point of enthusiasm where he declares in verse 8 that now he can really live, in other words, be comforted in life, knowing of their sound spiritual warfare. Paul outlines the prayer that he offers for them as he now has the assurance that they are enduring under persecution. That prayer is found in verses 9 through 13. First in his prayer is that he would be able to see them again in person in verses 10 and 11. Secondly, that the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another as well as to others in verse 12. And in verse 13, that God may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God. In verse 13, there Paul's referencing lifestyle before the world with his comment, blameless. 
That comes from the Greek word amemtos, used in chapter 2, verse 10, to describe Paul's own above-reproach conduct among them when he was there. And then Paul goes into living right before the world in chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this manner, because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also will aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. There are standards of conduct that should be obvious to believers. Paul indicates that he'd preached these to them when he was there in verses 1 and 2. We know from Bible references and secular history that Roman Greek society basked in moral depravity during that period. If you're looking for a commentary on first century practices, look at these three verses, verses 3 through 5, in this chapter, chapter 4. Here's what they say. Let's read them again. For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. As extra-biblical history substantiates, Paul indicates that the Roman Greek society of the first century was quite hedonistic, even by contemporary standards. Paul goes on to commend them for the love they demonstrate toward their brethren and he encourages them to maintain a good testimony before the lost in their conduct and work ethic. These first eight verses deal specifically with sexual immorality. A distinction of context should be made here regarding the usage of the word sanctification in verses 3 and 4. While sanctification can sometimes refer to our position in Christ, meaning set apart for heaven, in this context Paul is referring to lifestyle. If you'd like a clearer perspective on the distinction in the usage of the words, then refer to the box that I have on the right-hand side of the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today. The article is entitled, The Different Aspects of Sanctification. The Greek word for sexual immorality there is pornea, and it really means any kind of sexual immorality. With regard to the passion of lust in verse 5, Greek and Roman culture each exploited sexual pleasures beyond the imagination of most people. Thessalonica was right there in the midst of a culture that practiced a level of immorality that was reprehensible to Jewish thought. After salvation, Paul mandates and says, This is the will of God, that cultural practices be abandoned in lieu of honoring God with one's conduct. 
While sanctified conduct does refer to being God-honoring in all aspects of one's Christian life, Paul specifically deals with the abstinence from fornication beginning with verse 3 and going down through verse 8. The term, as I mentioned, sexual immorality from the Greek word pornea, it's seen in verse 3, the term passion of lust, the Greek word epithemia and pathos, meaning passionate lust, that's seen in verse 5. And then uncleanness in verse 7 comes from the Greek word akatharsia, and it's seen there in verse 7. All three of these words support the context of unacceptable sexual conduct. But what about verse 6? Well, to stay in the context of this passage, that verse specifically addresses fornication as well, when here's what he says, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. The Greek definite article is used before matter there in that verse. Therefore, this matter specifically addresses defrauding one's fellow Christians in fornication, as in stealing the virginity of another's future wife or taking unacceptable liberties with another's current wife. Verse 8 makes it clear that such a violation is against God himself. Then Paul does a segue in verse 9 when he says concerning brotherly love. That's a reference to its introduction in verse 6. Verses 9 through 12 contain general practices of being a good brother in Christ. He points out that this practice should extend outside the church of Thessalonica and should include all believers with whom they have contact, when he says, in all Macedonia. As we come to verses 13 through 18 of chapter 4, we have a rapture passage. Let's read it. Verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Now understand this, the rapture is not the second coming of Christ, and the second coming of Christ is not the rapture. We pre-tribulation rapturists believe that the actual return of Christ in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, that that occurs after the seven years known as the tribulation. The event to which Paul refers here is commonly referred to as the rapture. The pre-tribulation rapture position holds that the rapture takes place prior to the seven years of tribulation. By the way, this word rapture comes from a Latin word, raptus, which means to carry away. It's a pretty good description of what happens in this passage. Notice that we meet the Lord in the air. He doesn't actually touch down on the earth at that time. Paul outlines the rapture again to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 to 58. Now listen, this is important. All of the Old Testament prophecies concerning Christ's return point to the return of Christ to the earth at the end of the tribulation not this rapture. Therefore, not a single prophecy must be fulfilled prior to the rapture of believers. It could happen today. That's why we refer to the rapture as imminent. It could happen at any time. 
As a matter of fact, Paul believed that it could have happened while he was still living. We know this from the wording of verse 15 when here's what he says, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. He uses the plural personal pronoun we again in verse 17. Obviously, Paul counted himself as possibly among the living at the rapture. In other words, get ready and stay ready for the rapture. Now, I've provided a chart for perspective in studying these passages. And you'll also want to read the summary on Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 31, which is paralleled by Mark 13, 1 through 37, and Luke 21, verses 5 through 28. Look at those while you view the chart, and you'll get a better perspective on how this all takes place in the future. As you can see in verse 13, the primary concern is to comfort the Thessalonians with regard to those who have died already. He says, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. When we know a loved one has received Christ as Savior, in other words, they've been born again, then we're confident that they are with Christ already. As a matter of fact, verse 14 tells us that when we accept the resurrection of Jesus, we ought to be confident that those who have passed on before us, God will bring with him. And that's at the time of the rapture itself. In verse 15, he assures his readers that those alive at the rapture will not precede. It means uh, won't go before those who've already passed on. We see in verse 16 that the rapture is a spectacular event that takes place in the twinkling of an eye, according to 1 Corinthians 15:52. We see a phrase in verse 16 here that says the dead in Christ shall rise first. That must be reconciled, by the way, with verse 14, where it says God will bring with him. In fact, those saints who have passed away will be accompanying Jesus at the rapture. The word for rise in verse 16 is aniste me, which literally means to cause to stand or to raise up. In other words, at the rapture, those who have already passed away in Christ are the first to receive their glorified heavenly bodies. Two facts should be noted in verse 17. First of all, we meet the Lord in the air, means in the clouds. And secondly, from that point forward, we are with the Lord forever. Of course, verse 18, these are comforting words, especially for those who've been undergoing tribulation. That brings us to chapter 5, be ready for the rapture, verse 1. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. Paul's just described the rapture at the end of chapter 4. Now he's warning us to be ready for the rapture. We saw in chapter 4 that no signs necessarily precede the rapture. It'll be a complete surprise. 
Paul's admonition here is to be continually ready for this event. He describes it as a woman going into labor in verse 3. How descriptive. I recall with our first child that we went to bed on Tuesday night knowing that our son could be born at any time, but we were surprised shortly after 5 a.m. the next morning when we found it necessary to head for the hospital for the big event, an event which took place that afternoon at 2.32. Now, had I known the night before, I would have gone to bed earlier. As believers, we are to be constantly prepared for the rapture, not like the lost who are equated here to people in drunken stupors in verse 7. As a matter of fact, Paul uses the word sober in verses 6 and 8 here. That's the Greek word napho. That's to describe those who are prepared. Now, technically, napho refers to one who is free from the influences of alcohol, but it's often used figuratively to identify one whose judgment ability is clear, as is the case here. There's a contrast here between light and darkness. The sons of light, in verse 5, are anticipating the rapture, while the rest are compared to those who are drunken or sleeping. Then we have a verse packed with doctrinal implications in verse 9. Here's what it says. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. To properly understand this verse, it's important to recognize the context. The wrath spoken of here points to the difficulties that will be experienced by the inhabitants of the tribulation. We saw it also in chapter 1, verse 10. This verse implies that saved people will not need to endure these difficulties. In other words, they're not appointed to wrath because we will have been raptured prior to these events, and that's a pre-tribulation rapture. The phrase day of the Lord in verse 2 needs some clarification as well. The Greek noun for day is hemera. This word is used in Scripture in at least three different contexts. First, sometimes it's a 24-hour period of time. Then sometimes it's the daylight portion of a 24-hour period of time. And then other times it's figuratively to describe an extended period of time. You know, like sometimes you hear the old-timers say, Well, back in my day... Well, the day of the Lord in verse 2 identifies an extended period of time. And it's obvious from the context. And we know that time is the tribulation of Revelation chapters 6 through 19. It neither specifies the rapture nor the second coming of Christ, but it really refers to the period of time sandwiched in between those two events. Let's look at the entire verse 2 here. It says, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. The rapture is all good. The tribulation's all bad, some portions much worse than others. Forget Robin Hood, a thief here is all bad. The destruction events of the thief aspect of the tribulation is the reference here. In other words, the destruction, the death, the misery. Verse 10 might be easily misunderstood. Is this wake and sleep here literal or is it figurative? Well, the short answer is it's figurative. Now let's give the explanation. We saw in this passage that sober in verses 6 and 8 identifies the people whose minds are clear and are anticipating the rapture. On the other hand, the night conduct of verses 4, 5, and 7, they are representative of those who will be caught by surprise at the rapture. So first in verse 10, we see a four-word statement about the significance of the death of Jesus on the cross when Paul says, who died for us. 
As a matter of fact, with 1 Thessalonians perhaps being Paul's first epistle, this may be the first mentioned by Paul of Christ's substitutionary death on the cross. Then we have three Greek subjunctive verbs. The first two are wake and sleep, and both of these are preceded in the Greek construction here by ete, which is the Greek word for weather. Moreover, they're both in the present tense indicating continuing action in Greek. Therefore, the exact sense of their usage is whether we may be in an awakened condition or whether we may be in a sleeping condition. The result is to be found in the verb live. That's also in the Greek subjunctive mode. But unlike wake and sleep, the tense here is aorist, meaning action taken at a point in time, not continuous action. Therefore, live refers to a single event here, and that single event is the rapture. So putting it all together, here's the sense of verse 10. Christ died for us. That being the case, both those believers who are living in a state of readiness for the rapture and those believers who are not living in a state of readiness for the rapture will be raptured when the event of 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 16 and 17 takes place. Having trusted Jesus Christ as one Savior is the condition for salvation, and it is not the state of preparedness when Jesus raptures believers. Verse 11 complements verse 10. We see the security of the believer in the assurance that is to be found in verse 10. Christians will be raptured, period, ready or not. Use this truth, we see. Use this truth to comfort one another. Then Paul outlines some pointers on being ready for the rapture in verses 12 through 28 of chapter 5. And I read chapter 5, verse 12. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. So how are God's children expected to demonstrate that they are not like the unsaved children of the night? Well, these verses show us the readiness of believers who are anticipating Christ's big catching-away event. They're just plain old good neighbors. We see a series of rapid-fire admonitions on living a life acceptable before God. And all of these, well, they all make for good preaching. Verses 12 and 13 says, Honor your local spiritual leadership. Verse 14 has actually four commands. Those are warn those who are unruly, meaning the rebels or troublemakers. Then comfort the feeble-minded, being the discouraged people. 
then support or stick with the weak, being the spiritually immature. And finally, in verse 14, be patient. We're talking about long-suffering here, long-suffering toward all. Verse 15 says, don't look to get even with those who have wronged you. Verse 16, rejoice evermore. Well, who needs an explanation for that? Verse 17, pray without ceasing. In other words, a conversational relationship with God all the time. Paul also said in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, the following, Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. And then verse 18 says, Always thankful, knowing, by the way, that God is in control. In verses 19 through 21, Paul admonishes these Thessalonians to let the Holy Spirit manifest itself in verse 19 through the manifestation of the spiritual gift of prophecy in verse 20. But then he says, prove the validity of such prophecies and embrace those that are valid. Paul talks extensively about prophesying where it fits, how it's to be used in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Look at my notes on those two chapters for more details there. And then in verses 22 to 24, Paul says, abstain from all appearances of evil that result in a lifestyle that's blameless in spirit, soul, and body. That's what he means here by using the word sanctify or set apart. By naming the three parts of man, he obviously intends to convey the thoroughness of this sanctification. Paul tells them to abstain in verse 22. God will help them do so by setting them apart in verse 23. And we can depend on God's faithfulness to do so in verse 24. Then he asks them to pray for him in verse 25. And then in verse 26, we have instructions for greeting brethren in Christ. What is this holy kiss thing? Well, it's not unique to this passage. And we have other occurrences. In Romans chapter 16, verse 16, it says, Greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. In 1 Corinthians 16, 20, it says, All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. In 2 Corinthians 13, 12, Greet one another with a holy kiss. In 1 Peter 5, 14, Greet one another with a kiss of love. Paul intends that the greeting of brothers and sisters in Christ be similar to the greeting of family members. Finally, Paul concludes his letter by decreeing that it be read to all the believers. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walton.